Let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Father, we're thankful again tonight for the salvation that we have through the Lord Jesus Christ and His merits, not our own. And we thank You for the indwelling Holy Spirit and for His uh, preservation of the Church and the Scripture down through the centuries. We ask that You would illuminate our hearts to the lessons of the separation of the Church out of Israel and its roots, that we may understand the uh, nature of the leading of the Holy Spirit and understand better the nature of the church to which we belong. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. On the notes, we're on page 68 now. Uh, We've come to the last step. Um, If you look in the diagram uh, over on page 71, figure 4, we're on step 5. And uh, tonight we're going to hopefully finish. And next week, uh, I didn't get the handout ready for you, but we're going to go through the positional truth that pertains to the church so we can finish uh, this section um, with a clear delineation of what distinguishes the church from Israel. Uh, Then the next chapter will uh, deal with the uh, growth of the church from the time of Pentecost, this time that we've looked at here, all the way up to the present time. And then the final chapter will be the uh, end of the church age and the rapture of the church. So uh, we're going to look first in Acts 16 because um, this uh, event signals a new uh, manifestation of the plan of God and is deeply uh, related to long ago themes in Scripture. It's not just something that happened in Acts. And uh, that's why on page 68 and 69 I've isolated that Acts 16 section so we can look at, at, at how it's related to the rest of the Bible. <clears throat> but obviously what we have here is that the gospel is now being moved from Jerusalem northwest and there's Europe. So here for the first time we have the Word of God preached by the leader of the church, by the Apostle Paul on European soil. Right there was the big event. When he moved from Troas over here to these cities in Macedonia, that was the a major historic event. And it's given to us in Acts chapter 16, when in verse 9, Paul receives his famous Macedonian vision. So obviously, by recording this, Luke is telling us here is another example how the Holy Spirit is leading the church. And if they will get anything out of the book of Acts, the thing we would need to see is it's a model of how the Holy Spirit leads the church, not just individuals, but the church itself. And so, there, as he says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed him, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. He immediately endeavored, we, Luke and Paul, endeavored to go to Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. And so he goes from Troas uh, over to these cities here on the uh, the Aegean Sea. So that's the event. A few verses in Acts, and then Acts 14, it's talking about the conversion of a woman. Paul, by the way, here is still with the diaspora Jews, Um, But nevertheless, 
more and more, you can see from step five, is the church is going to be centered amid the Gentile nations. And that means a geographical separation from Israel. Not just a spiritual separation, but a spiritual and geographical separation. Now in the notes, I mentioned that this is deeply related, this coming to Europe business, is deeply related to themes in the scripture. And on the bottom of page 68, in that, that last paragraph, um, I mentioned the prophecy of Noah's sons. And uh, we look back and say that history has a shape and a form to it. And uh, verses like Acts 17, uh, 27, or wherever it is, Paul says, God made of all nations, uh, he, he controls their upwelling and their downfalling in order that men might seek God. That's the dialogical purpose of history, doxological purpose of history. So when it started, when our civilization started with Noah, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And we want to go back to Genesis 9 and look at that because it's been a number of years since we did that. So if we go back to uh, Genesis 9 and look at this outline of history, actually, because Acts 16 is related to this passage. It's just another example of it coming to pass. Noah, in verse 24 of Genesis 9, prophesies the role of his three sons in history. And he says, um, verse 24, he woke and knew what his younger son had done. And he said, Cursed be Canaan. But then he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Now if you look at verse 24, 25, 26, 27, notice the words for God. Notice the names that are given to God. And if you look at verse 26, that's the only section in there where Yahweh, Jehovah's name, is mentioned. And you'll notice the name is connected with Shem. And it's, and it's interesting because of the three Noahic sons, Shem seems to be the one who is going to carry the banner, so to speak, for God. Now, I mentioned this back years ago when we went over this. But if you look at history, the Shemites are easy to track because they're Jews and some areas of what we call Arabs, not all. Um, and ask yourself, of all the peoples on all the continents and all the centuries of history, where have the three monotheistic religions of the world originated? Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And who were the who were the of the three sons? Who were the propagators of this? It's always Shem. So it's interesting. Shem uh, propagates. Uh, he he acts as ultimately the custodian through the Jew, and of course he gives rise uh, to apostasy. Uh, through the uh, Ishmael and the, uh, and the Arab world with Islam. And then, of course, the Jew, down here comes the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Shem, down through history, has a role. And interestingly, he geographically tends to live at the crossroads of the world. The Shemites really 
have always been centered in the Middle East. Now, I mentioned back when we were studying this passage historically that when the Shemites, um, right after here, right after the flood, there's evidence that the Shemites populated the world, visited the world. They may have been the ones that mapped Antarctica before the ice sheets, remember that map that I showed you. But the Shemites left indelible reminders of their presence. Um, the Shemitic language is very conservative and it tends to have only three consonants in its stems. And one of the consonants, and this is kind of a semi-constant, more of like a verb, is uh, Iber. Hebrew. Hebrew. Now, if you think about it, we have the Iberian Peninsula. In Ireland, we have a, a river, the Iber. Um, we have the, those same three consonants show up on almost every continent. And there have been people who are linguistically trained who have tracked these strange Semitic roots that occur all over the earth. And it's not well known what happened. But somewhere, somehow, the people groups of the world were exposed in their ancient past to Shemitic language. Now, it may be that there's another explanation for this. Of all the linguistic groups, the Shemite language is the most conservative. And it may be that the presence of Shemitic stems in all these groups is a residue of what? what? Before there were many languages, there was only one language. Now, what was the one language? Well, before it became scholarly arrogance to deny the scriptures, most scholars in the 18th century uh, came to the conclusion it was Semitic. The Semitic language was the anchor language. And there's a number of evidences in the scripture that that is so, because Ish and Isha and the male-female noun forms in the different languages. So there's a number of arguments that these people hundreds of years ago talked about. I mean, this is not something new here. This is ancient tradition of, of scholars who were not so threatened by scripture they had to deny it. So here we have Shem and a very conservative linguistic stock. And I don't think it's an accident that the Semitic language is conservative with time. Because if Shem was indeed to be the channel of blessing to the world, and that blessing was verbal revelation, it would stand to reason that the language medium through which the verbal revelation came should be anchored, should be relatively conservative. I remember for a while I was interested in trying to learn some uh, spoken Hebrew. And uh, my tutor, who was in Israel at the time, mentioned to me that if Moses could somehow come back in a time machine and walk the streets of Jerusalem, uh, he and a child, a Jewish child, could converse and talk, communicate between each other. And that's rather an amazing statement. If Moses lived 14 centuries before Christ, and we've got a little Jewish kid in the Jerusalem street who's 20 centuries after, we're talking about a bridge here of 35 centuries of time, and the language has remained fixed enough so they can communicate. 
right across that bridge. That is amazing. So there's a powerful thing in history about this, this group of people and the Semitic, the Semitic peoples. Um, the next group, the Hamitics, uh, we'll bypass them for a moment. The Shemitics are easy to track. The Japhitics are all tracked in Genesis 10. So it's obvious who the Japhitics are. Um, the people listed in Genesis 10, 2, 3, 4 are all Indo-European peoples. So Japheth, he was the progenitor of what we would call the Indo-European peoples. And these peoples have an amazing history. The uh, Indo-Europeans actually crossed into India at one time so that what we call the Indian Indians of, of the subcontinent of India are actually a crossbreed of Indo-Europeans and Asians. And it's a very interesting thing because their anchor language, just as the anchor language here would be Hebrew and Arabic as the, as the conservative languages, guess what the anchor language is for Japheth? Sanskrit. And so you have the Sanskrit language. And from that you have the other languages. You have Latin, you have Greek, French, Spanish, so forth. So there's the, there's the linguistic um, track of, of this man, Japheth. Okay, so this is Japheth now. And Japheth is pretty well located in the Indo-European areas. Now the quest, next question is, <clears throat> who are the Hamites? Well, the Hamites are very difficult to track <clears throat> because of Babel and a number of other things that happened in history. But the reason, one of the reasons why they're hard to track is because they're very, very diverse. Hamitics can be white, as the Phoenicians were. Canaanites were white Hamitics. They can be black in the African subcontinent, or African continent, rather. Um, Hamitics can be Asiatic. So Ham... Uh, has promulgated a lot of racial diversity in the world. And as a result, he, this tremendous linguistic fracturing here. Uh, a a long-time uh, linguist with Wycliffe once said that you can take a Hamitic tribe and split them in half, put one on one side of a riverbank and one on the other side, and in five years they've already got new language. Um, these people just invent language differences. That's why it makes uh, so hard to translate scriptures. We've got thousands of tongues out there. Most of them are not Japhetic, and they're not Semitic. They're all Hamitic. So we have these, these Hamitics that go all over the place. And Arthur Custance, in his book, unfortunately, I, don't, I think it's out of print, but he, if you ever see a used bookstore somewhere, if you look for the book called Sons of Noah by Arthur Custance, it really is a treasure. Um, Custance was a physiologist with the, United, uh, with the Canadian Defense Department and he got a PhD in, in, in um, ancient history or language I guess it was and he points out that if you look in an encyclopedia here's a little exercise that anybody can take if you look in an encyclopedia 
and look up all the inventions of the world. It's, you know, from, from uh, drilling teeth to, to ink to printing press to gunpowder and so forth. Just list them all, hundreds of them. But just say a hundred of the basic inventions of the world. The wheel. Um, and uh, he says if you look at those, almost 90% or more of them come out of ham. The Hamitics seem to be the peoples on the planet who are very inventive. Uh, usually they're the ones who are the ones who are first into areas to settle. Uh, can any of you remember the story of our own pilgrims and how the first colony in Massachusetts survived in the winter? It was because of a Hamite, because an Indian who had been trained in England happened to know English, and he taught them how to raise corn. And that's how those guys, the Japhitics, who came from Europe to settle in Massachusetts, survived because of a Hamite that had been there before who knew how to grow things. So that's the distribution and the structure. And it's, it's a structure that, unfortunately, nobody bothers with in history. Just kind of poo-poo it. Nah, that's just the Bible. And lose out on a fundamental insight into history. Well, the, the key prophecy is in Genesis 9, verse 27, where it said, God shall enlarge Japheth. And if you think about it, most of the conquests globally have been done by Japheth. Conquests not just politically, but conquests uh, by way of organization. Think of Rome. Think of the Roman army engineers. Everywhere they went, they built a road. Uh, think of Latin and all of its influence. What was the scholarly language of the world? Latin. Um, what has become the lingua franca of the globe today? It's English. It's a Japhitic language. So you have Japheth doing all these things. God shall enlarge him, but it says he shall dwell in the tents of Shem. So he receives his nourishment, he receives his sustenance out of Shem. Well, how does he receive his sustenance out of Shem? What does Shem do in history? Shem isn't the great inventor. Shem doesn't invent languages. Shem hasn't made the discoveries architecturally. He hasn't made the inventions and gunpowder and all the rest of it. What has he done? He's preserved God's word. So here you have a faint adumbration in verse 27 of what we call Western civilization being built upon a Christian base. And it's that prophecy that figures behind Acts 16 and the Macedonian vision. Here comes Japheth in the person of Paul to give Europe the basis it needs to create a civilization. Now we mustn't, we have to be careful here some warnings. We're not identifying Western culture with Christianity. We're not doing that. Islam confuses. Muslims today, they see everything corrupt in the West, and in their minds, Western civilization is Christianity. So that's why they react the way they do to all of us. While it's a false identification, we're not responsible for all the junk that goes on in Western civilization. However, what is good about Western civilization, where it's developed a sense of order 
and where it's developed a sense of, of democracy and government has come out of the Word of God. Now, here's an exercise to do sometime. It's neat for kids that are studying in history. You take a coloring book with a map of Europe in it, and you take two color crayons and color in the areas first where there was a st the Protestant Reformation occurred and the teaching of the Word of God was prevalent. So think about it. Geographically, you're coloring in uh, the Netherlands, you're northern Germany, uh, in that area, England. You're coloring all that in. Now in the second color, go and color where democracy developed. Now isn't it strange that the two have a, a most interesting correlation? And that's the effect of Japheth dwelling in the tents of Shem. Okay, so back to Acts 16. So now we have a situation where Paul, in the Macedonian vision, is called, and this, this act of Paul in crossing into the European continent, that's long um, been in the planning stages, so to speak. I also mentioned, page 69 of the notes, that in Daniel, chapter 2 and 7, we won't go there in the interest of time tonight, but remember that the four kingdoms that were to come and replace Israel, those kingdoms would eventually dominate Jerusalem. And Jesus, when he, Jesus looked at the Roman uh, thing and the, the background for a lot of what we're going to say tonight, uh, I wish I had a picture here. What I'm going to be doing, I hope someday, is get them on a, and digitize so we can show them on a projector um, from a laptop. But the temple in Jesus' day, here's the Kidron Valley, here's the Mount of Olives over here. Up on this end of the temple was the fortress of Antonia. That was the place where the Romans built this fort to contain Jewish mobs because they, could, they didn't trust the Jews. And Palestine was a, as a big a pain in the neck to the Romans as it still is to the world. Always something going on. Somebody's killing somebody else. There's always a rebellion someplace. It's always been a mess. And so the Romans got fed up with it and they put this big fortress right here, right next to the temple. Didn't want to offend the Jews by going in the temple, but by golly, they had their, their military and their police all around that place. And the Romans, by doing so, uh, put themselves in a position here where, in effect, they control the temple. I mean, the Jews had physical access to it. But in 70 AD, they would destroy it. And when they destroyed the temple, Jesus said, that's the time of the Gentiles. And the, Jesus called it the time of the Gentiles. And the time of the Gentiles started in A.D. 70 and continues through today. As long as the Jews cannot control the Temple Mount, we have the times of the Gentiles. So again, you see the Gentile dominance. And so we, on page 69, I also mentioned the Great Commission, that the church is to go forth and preach the Great Commission. Go to all the nations and disciple them. 
So that's what God told the church to do. And what we're seeing in Acts 16 is God maneuvering the church to carry that mission out. You'll notice in this vision that happens, in verse 9, it's not that Paul and Luke set out to evangelize Europe. Look at verse 9 again in Acts 16 and you'll see that the initiative came from God. And that's the theme of Acts. Every time the church moves out, it either moves out because it's getting persecuted and forced out, or it's being led out, as for example, Acts 10, with a vision, Peter, Cornelius, the vision in Acts 16 of leading the church outward to fulfill its mission. Okay, now we come to Acts 21. And in Acts 21, we have a most interesting example of the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a controversial section of Acts. There are scholars on both sides of the fence here, who, some of whom argue that Paul really screwed up here. Others defend Paul. But regardless of what side you get on, the big picture remains the same regardless, and that is who's finally in charge of leading the church? The Holy Spirit. And it's quite evident in Acts 21 that we have a real mess and a chaos. And what we've got here is in the middle of this mess, the church is being led. So we have then, um, if you look at starting in Acts um, 21, verse 15. Let's look at this passage. We'll look at this pretty closely tonight because it's a, it's a real revelation of how Christians can really um, mess up um, and what some of the issues were in the early church. We already have studied Acts 15 and seen that they've had a big problem with legalism and the Mosaic Law. And now we're going to see this thing still hasn't been fully resolved. So in Acts 14... Um, Paul is not going to be persuaded and we ceased which kind of tells you that Luke and Paul were having a difference right here uh, saying the will of God be done you know if you, if you think God's leading you Paul you, you do it but we don't think God is leading you there's a genuine disagreement about how the Lord is leading the church here or how the Lord is leading Paul F.F. Bruce says that Paul is being led by the Holy Spirit. He goes back to verse 22 of Acts 20, and he says, look at that. It says, Paul says he was bound in the Spirit unto Jerusalem. Uh, Say the Holy Spirit witnesses in every city, saying the bonds and affliction which abide me. So F.F. Bruce points out that, well, look, the Holy Spirit's leading Paul, but he's warning him that things are not going to be cool in Jerusalem. What, so whatever, Paul's decided in verse 14, I'm going to go to Jerusalem. Now, what's the problem here? Well, we know what the problem is. The last time he was there in Acts 15, what was the issue? The issue was, what do we do with the new Gentiles? Do they go under the law or not? They settled that. They said, okay, we'll just expediently argue that, look, Gentile believers just don't do stuff that offends the Jews. You don't have to go through the Mosaic Law, but just don't offend things. So you'd think that they got that picture clear. What they didn't have clear 
was the other side of the issue, which was, what about Jewish believers? So watch the language here in this passage. There went with us also the disciples of Caesarea, brought with them one son of Cyprus, an old disciple whom, with whom we should lodge. And we were come to Jerusalem. The brethren received us gladly. So now who's receiving Paul? Believers or unbelievers? Clearly says. Believers are receiving Paul. So, they received him gladly. Verse 18. The next day, following Paul, went in to James, and all the elders were present. So now here's the church leadership. James, the same guy who was active in Acts 15. So we're having another church meeting. When he had greeted them, he kept declaring, it's, it's an imperfect tense here, meaning it went on for some time. He was declaring, and we could say literally one by one, counting these things, that God had wrought among the Gentiles by his ministry. So this is like a missionary coming back to church reporting on what had happened. And when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said to him. Now, this is an interesting sentence. This one verse right here shows you the dilemma of the early church. It also shows you the immaturity of the early church and why when you hear this stuff about, oh, let's get back to the first century. I frankly don't want to get back to the first century. The theology was terrible in the first century and they had discussions over issues that frankly were immature. The church was a little baby in the first century. They had some good things, yeah. But every church age, which we'll see in the next chapter, every age of the church is moving forward in some way. God is maturing the church down through the centuries. And so this is the infantile stage of the church. And so they glorified the Lord, thanking the Lord for the work that the Lord had done through Paul in the ministry of the Gentiles. Nothing wrong there. Now they got the problem. You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are who believe or who have believed. Perfect tense. Now, how many Jews believe? It says thousands. It's conceivable through the witness of some of the early church fathers that there was as many as 30,000 Jewish believers in Jerusalem at this time. The gospel had taken hold in the city of Jerusalem. There were a lot of believers. So, the first thing we notice about verse 20 is there's an admission of the success of the outreach of the gospel. Here, the city that crucified Jesus Christ has been evangelized, and this city that has been evangelized is the one now welcoming back Paul. But, it says... Not only do these Jews have believed, but they are all zealous of the law. Uh-oh. Now we've got a problem. Because it goes on to say, and they, believers, all this are believers. These are not unbelievers. These are believers. And they, believers, are informed of you that you teach, you are teaching, all the Jews which are among the Gentiles. And by the way, what do we call the Jews that are among the Gentiles? It begins with D. The diaspora. The diaspora Jews. You teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after their customs. What's going on? 
the multitude must need, will come together because they're going to hear that you've come. So now, therefore do this that we say to you. We have four men who have a vow. Take them, purify yourself with them, and be at charges with them that they may shave their heads. All may know that these things whereof they were informed are nothing, but that you walk yourself orderly and you keep the law. Now there's some problems here. We, uh, the leadership is making a decision about what Paul should do on the basis of what? Is this being based on the Word of God? Or is this being based on mob intimidation? The whole thing comes out of they're afraid of the, what, oh, these people are going to get together and it's going to be terrible and we're going to have a big problem here. So here, here's, here's the, how politicians working. And they come up and they concoct this scheme starting in verse 24. And this is a political scheme, not theological, it's political. Because Paul, in verse 21, has not said that they're going to forsake Moses. What he has said is that you can't get saved by keeping the law. That's what he said. Galatians. He said that the law cannot save. He said in Galatians, circumcision is of no avail if you put your trust in it. Let's hold a place and turn over to Acts because this is what he was teaching. We already have the epistles that tell us what he was teaching. And in Galatians, um, well, it's, there's a lot of stuff in Galatians. Um, let's say over... Um, Well, let's go to Galatians 5. That's where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, you can see how somebody gets hold of this, Galatians teaching, and you can see what happened over in Jerusalem that caused the riot here. It says, Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you are circumcised, Christ doesn't profit you at all. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. Christ has become of no effect. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. Now, in the context of verse 4, you can see he's not... He, the issue here isn't that the guys can't be circumcised as a custom to identify the Jewish community or something. What Paul's getting at is when you are circumcised thinking that you're getting justified by that act. Because notice the fine print in verse 4. Whoever, whosoever of you are justified by the law. That's what Paul is getting at. He's trying to clear the air on grace. That you cannot be saved by keeping the law or doing good works or anything else. You ran well. Who did hinder you? Little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I, brethren, verse 11, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. I would that they were even cut off, which trouble you. Now, that's a kind of a nasty word. What he's saying there, he says, you want to worry about circumcision, well, just cut it all off. Castrate them. And so it's a sarcastic thrust here in the text. And it's really rough. 
and this did not go over well in the Jewish community. Remember, Galatia is in the Asia Minor area where there were diaspora Jews. And guess who came down to Jerusalem to tip off the people in Jerusalem? This stuff was going on. So it was this kind of teaching that led to this problem in Acts 21. So, let's go back to Acts 21. The interpretation of the diaspora community in verse 21, who had become believers, they are informed that you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise. Now, what is the deal? Paul was, the deal was that circumcision isn't going to save you. The Messiah is going to save you. So they wanted to concoct the scheme to placate a mob. Instead of clarifying the issue and just confronting it, they want to kind of tiptoe around it. I mean, this is, a, this is political artistry. So they, they work this deal up with these four guys who have a vow. This is number six, if you want to get into number six. But the, the issue here was, if you have a vow in the Old Testament, under the Old Testament law, there's a period of time when you're dedicated to the Lord. And during that period of time, you go to the temple and you make sacrifices and so forth. Some feel, in verse 24, that Paul actually was to pay for their offerings. It was expensive to take the vow because you had to give all these extra sacrifices to the temple. And sacrifices, I mean, we're talking expense here. Money. So, what they're saying is you could... You could you could get back in good graces, Paul, if you would take these four guys, take them to the temple with you, pay their ticket, pay the tab, and, and show people, hey, look, see, Paul, look at that. He's going to the temple. He's being a good Jewish boy. He's going through the route. Hey, what, what's your problem? And the conclusion, what they hoped would happen at the end of verse 24, is that all these other rumors, Paul, are nothing. Well, I'm sorry. They are something. They're not nothing. They're the whole Galatians message of how you're saved. You can't hide that under a bushel. So they said, well, let's make the issue go away. And that you yourself walk orderly and you're keeping the law. Now, as touching the Gentiles who have believed, we've written and we've concluded. So see, verse 25 harps back to ver uh, chapter 15. They're going back. They did. They solved the problem. Are Gentiles under the law or they aren't under the law? Answer, Acts 15, they're not under the law. So if they're not under the law, that solves that problem. But it doesn't solve the problem. What's the status of Jewish believers then once they become Christians? Here's a Jew. The Jew trusts in Jesus Christ as Messiah, saved by grace. What's the relationship of this Jewish guy or gal, now to the law. What happens? That had not been resolved at this point. And obviously, from the language of verse 20, what was going on is very clear. That these believers were zealous of the law, they lived by the law, they went to the temple through the law, and they, they probably, theologically, still had did not grasp what God's grace was all about. So, Paul took the men, next day purifying himself, he, kept, he was entering the temple to signify the accomplishment of the days of purification until an offering should be offered for every one of them. So here he's part of this Old Testament uh, thing. 
And when seven days were almost ended, you'll notice it went on day after day after day. Now this is dangerous business here. You've got thousands of legalists watching this thing going on, and of all places, they got Paul right smack dab in the middle of it, the great apostle who's been called to Europe, on whose shoulders the future of Western civilization hangs, and they got this guy in a life-threatening situation going in and out of the temple for six or seven days. So he took them in, he entered in the temple, when six or seven days were ended, the Jews, which were of Asia, where's that? Asia Minor. That's the place where Galatians was written. So, the Jews of Asia, diaspora Jews, who had heard grace teaching from the Galatian epistle, when they saw him in the temple, stirred up the people and laid hands on him. So now we go, here goes the riot now. So here the legalists are. This is religious bullying. It's not the first time and not the last time. But it's bullying. It's not based on the Word of God. It's based on false information, stupid theology, and mob violence. And they said, men of Israel, this is the man that teaches all men everywhere against the people, against the law, and against this place. Now, it seems to me that we had that issue back with Stephen, didn't we? The Torah and the Temple. Here we are again, same issue, years later. And this place further brought Greeks into the Temple and has polluted the holy place. This guy's not only going in here, he's brought Greeks in here. Verse 29, however, clarifies what actually had happened versus what the mob thought had happened. And they had seen before with him in the city Trophimus and Ephesians, whom they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Paul did not bring him in the temple. So they got false information. Must have watched television. And all the people was moved. And the people, city was moved and the people ran together. I mean, you, this, is, this is not just a few dozen people here. These, this is a large-scale, violent mob of thousands of people. And they drew, took Paul and they drew him out of the temple and the doors were shut. And as they were about to kill him, so this shows you how close when God had called the church to go to Japheth, the church almost, right at this point, was almost stopped cold. Had Paul been killed, we wouldn't be sitting here tonight. This is how razor thin the thread of the spread of the church was. They were almost ready to kill him. Now, back to our fortress Antonia. Now you will notice who is responsible for saving the gospel. Jews or Gentile military? Now, isn't this a revelation? The Jews are rioting and the hand of salvation that God uses is the Roman army. Exactly opposite to what the zealots thought would happen. They hated the Romans. They were going to have freedom for the Jews. Freedom for the Jews. The oppressors. The Roman occupiers. Colonizers. And yet God used the Roman occupiers and colonizers to save Paul's life and to extend the church. Remember, the book of Acts is the record of the work of the Holy Spirit. 
and humanly speaking, it apparently was put together by Luke for Paul's trial in Rome. So, of course, scholars who are skeptics say, well, sure, verse 31, verse 32, verse 33, that's just put in there by Luke to make the Romans look good. Because, after all, Paul's going to be tried in a Roman court and he's got to make the Romans look good. Nobody has to make the Romans look good. Romans were involved in the crucifixion of Christ. But verse 31 and verse 32 are a major point that's being made here saying that divine institution number four, which is civil government, and and you can say that civil government sometimes is cruel. Yes, it is. Sometimes it violates people's rights. and Yes, it does. But the point is that that's the only defense the human race has against mob violence and anarchy. So, tidings came to the chief captain of the band, and this wasn't a little small band of 30 soldiers. This probably, these guys are probably in the thousands, a couple of thousand people here, well-trained. And so there might have been 30,000 Jews in the mob, but 2,000 Romans could take on 30,000 Jews anytime. These guys were trained. You read the Roman, the Roman training documents and part of their physical training, because remember, they didn't have cars, they didn't have patrol cars, didn't have tanks, didn't have armor. These guys had to walk. And the, the training manuals, the ones that have survived down through history, say that the Roman soldiers were, were expected, uh, I think it was three or four times a month or something, to do a 20-mile march in daytime, 12 hours or less. And they would, a quick time march had to be 24 miles. And the soldiers had to do that periodically. As I said, I forgot whether it's three or four times a month or when. But they had drills. And that's how the Roman army moved, on foot. That's why they built roads. And these guys had drills with their armor and everything else. And one of the stories was an interesting story back uh, several months back. And um, Krulak pointed out something very interesting about the Roman army that sort of pertains. We, we hear the word integrity. And, and Krulak says, have you ever thought about where the word integrity comes from? He said, let me tell you about where integrity came from. He said, the word comes from a Latin word, integritas. And it has to do with the breastplate of the Roman soldier. And early on, before the Caesars corrupted the whole thing, when the Roman army was at its grand, grand quality, the uh, centurion who would inspect his soldiers, as he walked down, the soldiers would slam their, their uh, fist against their breastplate and yell integritas. And the point that why they would slam their fist like that was because they didn't like to wear the breastplate. It was, a, it was heavy, it was hot, it was a pain in the neck. But the point was, the officers wanted to make sure these guys had it on. It's like body armor. And integritas meant you had your body armor on. Well, later on, there was a group of Roman soldiers that were then taken out of the army and made to be a bodyguard for the Caesars. They were known in history as the Praetorian Guard. And when, they, when the Caesars became dominant and became the, the people of power. Instead of the Republic of Rome, it was the Caesars. Everything's centered on the Caesar. At that point, the salute changed 
from slamming the chest and saying integritas, meaning I am a soldier, I have my armor, I'm ready to roll. Instead of that, it was holding the fist out to Caesar, hail. And Kulak pointed out when that happened, the army lost integritas. Because no longer was it the issue of whether the weapons were ready. It was now the political thing. We support Caesar. So the most prominent issue was the loyalty of the soldier to Caesar, not the loyalty to the army unit for his weapons. And he went on to describe that. But that gives you the background of some of these guys now, this band mentioned in verse 31. That's the kind of guys that are here now. They are well-trained professional soldiers who immediately, the, the officer in charge, took soldiers and centurions. By the way, notice that he took centurions. That tells you how many people. Centurions were senior officers. So if he took centurions, plural, he took their units. The centurions were going down there because the centurions were, they, they had alerted unit two, unit three, unit four, unit five. I want you down there. I want you down there now. We got something going, hot in the temple. So here they go. He took soldiers and they ran down unto them. And when they saw the chief captain and the soldiers, they left beaten. Boy, you bet they did. The Roman army had a lot of respect. And when they saw the soldiers coming with a two-edged sword, breastplates, running, probably in formation, they said, I think we can do this another day. That's right. And so from this point on in the book of Acts, from this point on to the end of the book of Acts, it's all centered on Rome. Rome is in charge. Paul has to dialogue. He, yes, he talks to some Jews. But the basic dialogue is always Paul moving his way back to Europe, all the way, not just to Europe per se, but back to the headquarters of Europe, which is Rome. Acts 28 brings Paul back to Rome. Look at what happens here in Acts 21. The chief captain came near, he took him, he commanded him to be bound with two chains, demanded who he was and what he had done. And some cried one thing and another and so on. When he could not know the certainty of the tomb, he commanded him to be carried in the castle. Couldn't interrogate him out in the middle of the street. He had to bring him someplace where there's some quiet. And by the way, he didn't call the ACLU for 15 attorneys for this clown. The soldiers did it. And so, some cry one thing, and when he came upon the stairs, so it was, he was born of the soldiers for the violence of the people. He's carried along by the soldiers. These guys were in tight formation, and they got him out of there. Paul's life was saved by a military force. And the multitude of the people said, away with him. As Paul was being led, he said, Under the, Captain, may I speak to you? Who said, can you speak? Can you speak Greek? Are you not that Egyptian, which before these days made an uproar and led out into the wilderness 4,000 men that were murderers? See, they had all kind of false messiahs. And the Egyptian, in verse 38, is one of the false Christs. And so, obviously, the Jews were all upset over that issue. And so the Romans, they, you know, they, they had their spy system, but, I mean, there were so many things going on in the Jewish community, they didn't keep track of every little thing. So here this guy figures, okay, here's another troublemaker. Let's find out what his problem is. And Paul said, no, I'm, I'm a man, of, a Jew of Tarsus, a citizen of no mean city, and I beseech you, suffer me to speak to the people. 
And so he goes on and he speaks in the Hebrew tongue, verse 40. By the way, notice Paul bilingual here. The Roman army soldier who speaks Latin and Greek understands Paul. Then in verse 40, Luke notes that when he goes to speak to the mob, he speaks to them in Hebrew. Now he starts, men, brethren, and fathers, just like Stephen did. Isn't this amazing? It's almost a recapitulation of Acts 7. When they heard he was speaking in the Hebrew tongue, they kept the more silence. And he goes on to say, he gives his testimony. He talks about the Damascus Road experience in verse 5, verse 6, verse 7. And, uh, and then he talks about verse 10, what shall he do, Lord? And then, verse 14, the God of our fathers has chosen thee that thou shouldst know as well. That's what the church told him. For thou shalt be witnesses unto all men, all men, not just Jews, all men, of what you have seen and heard. And he talks about his baptism. And then he describes how, to get, how the Jerusalem thing goes on. He gives more information. Verse 20, When the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I was standing by. Notice he says, Thy martyr. You know why he's saying thy? Because these are diaspora believers. Stephen came out from among them and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said, Depart, I will send thee far unto the Gentiles. And they gave him audience up to that word. Then it's, uh-oh. Now they lifted up their voices and they said, Away with him, for it's not fit that he should live. These were believers. See? First century church at work. And as they cried out and cast off their crows and threw the dust into the air, the chief captain commanded him to be brought back into the fortress and bade that he should be examined by scourging. And as they bound him with thongs, Paul said to the centurion that stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is Roman? And when the centurion heard that, he went and he told the chief, uh, chief officer, Take heed what you do. This guy's a Roman citizen. And the chief captain said, Tell me, are you a Roman? He says, Yes. And the chief captain said, Well, the great sum I obtained this freedom. Paul said, I was born free. Now notice something. The Romans were centered on law and principle. Amazing. They really were. And here's an example of this. The guy knew his, his law. And he knew that he'd get in big hot water to abuse a Roman citizen. So, Paul let that be known. And so it goes on and on from verse 29, verse 30. You can read Acts 23. You can read Acts 24. You can read Acts 25. It's all Rome, 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 Rome. Going to get a trial. He's going to talk to Agrippa. He's going to talk to some of these guys. But it's basically, I'm headed to Rome because I am a Roman citizen and Rome has authority over me. So that's a rather surprising thing that happens here. Acts 21 is a, is a really fascinating passage in church history because it shows when believers were out of line, filled with legalism, it took unbelieving Roman military to, to bring order into that. I mean, what a, a shameful rebuke to the church that they couldn't conduct their business and had to have unbelievers come in and maintain order. Remind you of some of these stories you read about where some church meeting gets out of hand, they have to call the police. Great Christian testimony. And the same thing happened right here. And finally, in Acts 28, 
as I mentioned in the notes, you have this sentence. Notice going over to 28. Here Paul is in Rome. He's going to witness again. Verse 17. Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people and customs of our fathers, I was delivered prisoner from Rome into the hands of, uh, from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And he gives his testimony. And then he says, uh, verse 22, We desire to hear of you what you think. As far as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. By the way, notice that, that these are people talking to Paul now. Um, and when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him to his lodging, to whom he kept on expounding and testifying the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses, out of the prophets, from morning until evening. Talk about witnessing opportunity. This guy went on day after day like this. So, he kept on doing it. In this case, it's one day from a morning till an evening, but we can suppose this wasn't the first the last time it happened. Now, verse 24. Here's the response to the greatest evangelist in church history. And some believed the things which he spoken, and some believed not. And when they agreed not among themselves, and that's a key, verse 25 is a historical observation that the Jewish community could not agree on this matter. They were neither hot nor cold. They didn't totally reject Christ, but they couldn't all accept him either. And when they agreed not to, to agreed not among themselves, they departed. And after that, Paul spoke one word. After that, Paul spoke, Well spoke the Holy Ghost by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Go to this people, hearing you shall hear, and shall not understand, seeing you shall see, and not perceive. And he quotes that Isaiah passage which was given before the exile when the Jewish nation went into exile after Isaiah kept giving them the word, giving them the word, giving them the word, giving them the word, over and over and over. And they said, no, we don't want it, we don't want it, we don't want it, we don't want it. And finally, okay, okay, exile for you guys. Well, now look what happens here. Be it known, verse 28, that unto you that the salvation of God is sent to the Gentiles and they will hear it. So this is the end of Acts. This is the end of the separation of the church from Israel. And you can see how God worked. He used all kinds of means. He used dreams. He used visions. He used persecution. And he used an unbelieving military. But over it all, God was sovereign. God said, you will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. And when you have a group of people who can't get with the program, God bypasses them, moves on to somewhere else. And it's, it's sad that Colson, this, this evening, Carol and I were talking about coming, to, coming here. If you heard um, Breakpoint, that he was going on about Amsterdam. And uh, Amsterdam is the whorehouse of Europe, of course, as anybody in the military knows. But it's now become the euthanasia place where people are put to death, sometimes without their permission, by the doctors. And he describes, uh, the, he says, one uh, Dutch woman came to me. She said she had a sick baby and didn't dare bring it to the hospital because she couldn't trust the doctors to keep it alive because if it was too sick, they'd kill it. And so she brought it in for the third treatment or something, and she walked out of the hospital room down the hall to come back, and her baby was dead. And the doctor runs out of the room and says, I didn't do it! I mean, it's pretty sad when the health care people 
have to have to say, oh, I didn't do it, and your kid dies. Well, this is this is Holland. Now, in 1901, you know who was the prime minister of Holland? Abraham Kuyper, who was not only a believer, but Abraham Kuyper wrote the standard theological text on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Abraham Kuyper started a university in the Netherlands to teach the Word of God in every area, mathematics, law, jurisprudence, politics, literature. And Holland got a chance for that Word of God over and over, and they rejected Somewhere between 1901 and 1970 and 1980, something went wrong in Holland. And here's a people who were invaded by the Nazis, and the Nazis practiced genocide, and the Dutch were the ones that saved the Jews from the Holocaust, and now they're doing it to not only their babies, but their elderly people. So that's how fast history can turn. And it's a sad day. But when you see a group of people who have been exposed over and over and over to the Word of God and turn their back on it, God oftentimes says, okay, fine, we'll go somewhere else then with the gospel. North Africa, at one time, was the heartbeat of Christianity. Augustine, Alexandria, largest library in the ancient world. Today, you could count on one hand the number of Christians in North Africa. It's all, all under Islam. Had the witness, turned away. New England, at one time, preaching the Word of God in New England like, like it had nowhere on the planet before in church history. And then came the Unitarians and unbelief and Harvard and Yale and everything else, and it went down the drain. And the Christian ministries in New England to this day, the only successful Christian ministries in New England are transplants. People have had to move because of business or something and moved into the area. They're the only ones that are flourishing. Native people have been there for centuries, uh, are just hard, legalistic, don't want to hear the gospel. And that's what happens. So it's a very sobering picture we see when God turns away. If God can do that in verse 28 and turn away from his own people, imagine what he can do to Gentile nations who have a chance to hear and blow it off. Father, we thank you for your witness. We are sobered as we think of our own history and the opportunities we've had with the Word of God. And we see rejection. We know that by your grace, uh, if it wasn't for your grace, we would be rejecting it also. But we do pray for those in this country who have had opportunities to hear that you would open hearts, that we would not be a rejected people as so, so happened in history of continent after continent who have once time heard and then have turned away. We thank you for your grace that is renewed each day. We thank you that you send your rain on the just and unjust alike. And we ask again that you would continue your grace, that we have opportunities to witness, to share the gospel, and to live lives peacefully and without a lot of the persecution that visits the church in other areas. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. For a few evenings. Um, we'll be referencing epistles because we're going to deal with how the church grows. But um, we've finished pretty much the biblical historical narratives for now. Okay. Debbie? Um, we're, we're falling to Jerusalem.
I mean, it just seems odd that James is mentioned and then just kind of left there, almost as if, was there a reconciliation there, or where was he in all of it? Well, Debbie has brought an interesting point that the text shows clearly James was involved at the front end of this thing, and then he kind of fades out after the thing gets out of control. Um, when you look at the text, so when you, these are neat questions, and they've intrigued me too. And I, I ask those kind, same kind of questions. And unfortunately, the text so often doesn't tell us the answer to the question. It kind of leaves it. So then I say, well, you know, God, why the heck couldn't you have just filled us in a little bit here? You kind of left everything up in the air. And then I have to think, well, wait a minute. The scriptures are sufficient unto every good work, so if the Holy Spirit left it up in the air, then that's the way the Holy Spirit wanted to leave it. And so if that's the way the Holy Spirit wanted to leave it, what is he saying to us? And I think what he's saying to us, I think there is a message in the fact that it's left up in the air. I think he's basically saying the leadership of the Jerusalem church uh, failed. And that what you have is the church migrating to Europe. And the church has never been strong in, in the Middle East since. I mean, think about it. When's the church ever had a vibrant testimony after this period in history? In the Middle East, it hasn't. And it, was, it represents a failure on the part of the believers. And, and if you think about the theology involved in the failure, uh, what was going on theologically and doctrinally, uh, it's scary because what it is is legalism. And you had mentioned earlier about the Galatians issue when we were talking about the Mosaic Law, and I, I mentioned, yeah, you can go back to Mosaic Law for insights into how the political community can, can gather insights, and that's true. It can be used as wisdom. But you can see that the church had a bad taste in its mouth over this issue of legalism, and it's lasted for centuries. And every time the church drifts back into it, it comes out in the same way. This is why uh, where grace is not exalted and the Holy Spirit doesn't have freedom to work because the church has this preconceived notion of the boundaries of the Holy Spirit's working uh, in, in the sense of this legalism then um, you get all kinds of problems in church and, and the Jews that finally made it through all this um, we're wonderful. Hebrew Christians have been, they have this wonderful Hebrew Christian. We still, to this day, have them. Uh, and they face a big problem. Uh, my wife and I had, uh, had know of a couple in, in, in Baltimore who, the fellow's wife is an Orthodox Jewish girl. And uh, he said when she became a believer, a Messianic Jew boy, that was it. Her dad didn't talk to her for six or seven years. I mean, just, you know, you're my daughter, forget that baby, you're out of here. And, and there was that, that, that thing, and the issue was the Torah. The issue was, because she was a Messianic Jew and accepted Christ, that, and because she accepted Christ, she wasn't going through all the little orthodoxy things, that therefore she had apostatized as a Jew, and that's not true. She's just as much a Jew today as she was the day she became a Christian. Um, so that's, that's this heritage. And I think what we, the big picture in Acts is that God is just bypassing Jerusalem. It's sad. But he's bypassing them because they bypassed him. In fact, uh, I didn't have time to point this out, but there's a passage 
uh, I think it's in, I don't know if it's in Acts 21 or 22, but the Greek, um, the Greek is they incited, uh, laid hands on him. That was it. They laid hands on him. And I, I noticed that that same Greek expression is used in Luke, or I guess it was in Matthew, for when they laid hands on Jesus. Now here's Luke writing, you know, from a human point of view, he's selecting his own vocabulary. Now why do you suppose he describes the assault on Paul with the vocabulary that is used in the Gospels for the assault on Jesus? I think the Holy Spirit has a message there too that what's happening is Paul is basically acting as a surrogate for Jesus. And in rejecting Paul, they have rejected Christ again because they've rejected his representatives. And, and so you have the, the, the next step that happens in the history of the church here, after Acts 28, you know what happens. That's the fall of Jerusalem. Nasty business. You know me, I'm stuck on a law thing. Murder was illegal from, you know, Cain and Abel all the way through. And then the Mosaic Law reiterates it again. And then we're still in the age of grace. And we assume murder is still illegal. <laughs> I haven't looked in the New Testament to see if it actually was written with murders, you know, the sin. But how do you um, explain that? Is that the law that Christ has written in our hearts, or what is that? It's law. Yeah. And we say that, you know, no matter, we live in the age of grace, but murders are sin, we don't do it. How do you explain that to me? <laughs> well, because God's moral character doesn't change. And this immutable, I am the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that moral character radiates its righteous standards in all kinds of ways. One is in our heart. In all the dispensations. In all the dispensations. Romans, Romans 1.32 says, not just murder. If you look in verse 32 of Romans 1, it says, there's about 30 things that God lists. And it says, who know that those who do such things are worthy of death. And now that's the sense that all men have. That's Romans 1.32. So what that says is the human heart, when it hasn't fooled itself, when we haven't covered it over with all kinds of fancy excuses, the classic one is the murder trial in California several decades ago called a Twinkie's defense. Please excuse so-and-so for murdering somebody because their blood sugar was high. And they call it sarcastically. And that ever since has been known as the Twinkies defense. Um, so the, the issue here is that there's always law with a little L. That never changes. And the other thing that, that never changes is previously instituted authority never changes. And previously instituted authority from Genesis 9 is the fourth divine institution, which is civil government. And civil government, I'm sorry, I remember I was on a jury, I was called to a jury thing here in Harvard County back um, a while. Dave saw me down there that time. Um, and I was walking back to the parking garage, and this guy's walking with me, and he said, they, I forgot, I guess the, the trial happened the next day or something, so the jury pool was dismissed. 
And this guy was saying, well, they never, they probably never accept me. I don't accept, I don't believe in capital punishment. So I quickly rejoined, well, they probably wouldn't accept me because I do believe in capital punishment. And um, so the guy was really surprised. Um, but the point is that, that capital punishment is, I mean, if you read Romans 9, the, uh, the right to take life is what makes civil government civil government. There's no other right. The patriarchs had rights over their children to discipline them, to take property away and corporally punish. The, the, a new thing that happened was capital punishment that was given to the state. Now, people, because they say we live in the age of grace and so on, yes, we do. I mean, I've been in jail ministries. We try to work with people. But the point is that the basis, the moral and ethical basis of the state's power has not changed. And there's a reason why it hasn't changed. Because ultimately, the fourth divine institution is going to be absorbed into and run by whom? Jesus Christ. And when he comes back, he's going to be using capital punishment. So, that institution is kept alive, kept alive, kept alive over the centuries. And that, that authority hinges right there. If you can take life, you can do anything else. That's why the state can take property. I mean, if you look in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, well, I don't like this. I resent it deeply in the sense that property under Gentile power of the four kingdoms is totally the power of the state. That's why you don't have title to your own property. You really don't because there's something called the law of eminent domain. If they want to expand I-95 through your backyard, they have the right to expand it and they, they'll compensate you. There's just compensation, just depending on your real estate value. but. They have, the state has the right to take your property away from you, regardless if it's been titled to your family for five decades, five generations, I mean. That's their right. Now, where does that come from? Most people don't know where it comes from. It's written in the Bible. It's in, Genesis, in Daniel chapter 2. What, is, what does the Holy Spirit say through Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar? I've given you all people under your hand, and I've given you all their land. Yes. That's not part of the Mosaic law. That's wisdom that's been obtained through the Holy Spirit by the wisdom the wisdom literature which by which we designate Daniel, by the way, is in the wisdom corpus of the Old Testament canon. Song of Songs, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Psalms, those those books. Wisdom characterized the Mosaic Law also. Because in Deuteronomy 4, God says, after I've given you the law, O Israel, and I've given you a law that is more wise than all the other nations. It was the framework of the law. See, you can't have wisdom, Donna, unless you have a culture that breeds it. Wisdom is something that's corporately produced. It's not just a person. It's an individual. And... The whole idea, remember wisdom literature culminated when? In the golden era of Solomon. So it's as though God built this Jewish culture, brought it into the promised land. Yeah, it was full of warts and sin, but God brought it into the promised land 
and corporately they, they had a social life as well as an individual life. And out of this corpus, superintended by God, came a flourishing culture. It's the manifestation of a divinely oriented culture that is wise. So Proverbs and these other books become the educational material of a wise society. And well, then I can see why the Jews would be having this problem. Absolutely. I mean, because if you look at that as your heritage... Absolutely. It's not easy for them. The pride, the national pride in receiving all of this... But go... Yeah, but, but actually, Paul was not ever saying abandon the wisdom and the good things of Judaism. He never did that, because if you look back, and, and uh, you know, the night that we were talking about law, Paul is excerpting from the law in the wisdom sections. Yeah, he, he's taking the law and applying it to the church in a wisdom way. And you can see where he does it. For example, uh, he talks about um, pastors being paid. And he uses the law for animal cruelty, to, prevention of cruelty to animals, in the Mosaic Law, to talk about pastors. Uh, oxen, you know, can eat while he's doing his thing, and and so on. Paul uses that. Paul goes back in a financial thing. I mean, I, over the last five or six years, I've been aware of this for various reasons in our own family. Um, but there's a passage in Corinthians where he says, children. Uh, parents should lay up for their children, not children for their parents. And he, he's applying it to church, again, salary issues. And he's saying, look, I'm a church leader. Uh, I don't want to corrupt the congregation who cannot afford to pay me. So he says, I, 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 you, guys, you guys are the children in this spiritual relationship. I'm the parent, so it's really my responsibility to support myself here because I don't want to be a burden to my children. Now, he's, he's getting that out of the Mosaic Law Code. So you'll see, if you read the epistles, and the best way to do this is if you have one of these study Bibles, look at the margins where they refer Old Testament passage. You'll see how frequently he's doing that, doing it all the time. So there's an example of how, he, yeah, he was applying the law of the church, but never, never, never in the sense of that Jewish pride that if I keep it, that makes me points with God. There was never that attitude. Once you get past the foundational yeah. Then you're, yeah. And sanctification point. Because if you're saying that you can't be sanctified unless you keep the law. I mean, we Christians have this tendency to drift from one extreme to the other. And we all do. It's law and grace. And the problem is that when we get hung up, we get so tight, uptight about keeping this law. Oh, am I violating this? Am I doing this? You drive yourself nuts after a while. You know, you get a life, relax, and, and fall back on grace here. But grace always has substance. Because if we are oriented to grace, we are reminded of the fact that why do we need grace? Because we're sinners. And grace comes through a very costly thing called the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. So, it's so grace is sobering. But grace is also a recognition that, like Peter said in Acts 15, remember that dialogue when we had in Peter? He says, what are you guys laying this on the Gentiles? And we couldn't keep the plastic thing. And you're going to lay this on Gentiles? No. 
The law aggravates when it's presented as law. When it's properly presented, and I think even the Ten Commandments, if you look at the Ten Commandments, when God spoke the Ten Commandments into existence, uh, He very graciously put a um, preview on before He started the Ten Words. Remember what He said? I am the Lord God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. In other words, what's the insinuation? That you ought to be grateful. I saved you. I did the work first. And then if you think in terms of the framework, what comes first? Exodus or Sinai? Exodus. So what comes first? Salvation. After salvation, we deal with the issue of what does God want me to do? And there's Sinai and the law. See? Even the sequence of events is, it protects you. Sinai comes after Exodus, not before Exodus. They weren't saved by keeping the law in Egypt. Yes. You know, I mean, I think that's the, that's the focus that has to be. If we all of a sudden take our eyes off of Christ and start focusing... Yes, on good point, Debbie. ...wisdom, we're going to end up off the track. Yeah, that's a good point. We're looking at the law through, the, uh, through Christ. That's a good, safe way to use it. And we've run out of time, so next week we'll, uh, we'll get on to the position of the church.